Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Underneath the circus of our political process, a uniquely American feature, are the power of both personality and words. The way those two things come together, like lyrics and music, have shaped and guided us for the 240 years of our republic. The personalities are the men and women that put themselves out there into the arena, who often have a vision or passion for where they want to take their constituencies using the power of both charisma and persuasion to get them there. The other part is the words, because language matters. And as former New York Governor Mario Cuomo so clearly stated, candidates campaign in poetry and govern in prose. But both are about language. It's why we sometimes know the names of the best of those that help our leaders express those words. As Ted Sorensen did for JFK, as Bill Sapphire and Ray Price and Pat Buchanan did for Nixon, as James Fallows did for Jimmy Carter, as Michael Gerson did for George W. Bush, and as Peggy Noonan and Tony Dolan did for Ronald Reagan. For Barack Obama, Cody Keenan helped write the lyrics to the president's music. As such, he had not just a front row seat to history, but with his words and collaboration, helped shape that history. All of this comes into bold relief during 10 days of the Obama presidency in June of 2015. Like poetry or the history of a grain of sand, so much of America is captured in the intensity of those 10 days that Cody Keenan writes about in his debut book, Grace, President Obama, and 10 Days in the Battle for America. Cody Keenan began as a campaign intern in Chicago and became chief speechwriter at the White House and Barack Obama's post-presidential collaborator. He teaches a course in political speech writing at his alma mater, Northwestern University. And it is my pleasure to welcome Cody Keenan here to talk about grace, President Obama, and 10 days in the battle for America. Cody, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Jeff, nice to be with you. Well, it is great to have you here. I want to talk about the general amount of things that go into any speech. In so many respects, you're dealing with feelings, you're dealing with marketing, you're telling a story, and you're trying to nudge history along just a little bit. Talk about all of those things that come together in in really the perfect storm of speech writing. Uh, all of that is true. You know, you're the single the single most important thing about a speech is that it should tell a story. Um, and whenever we would sit down before a big speech, we would ask ourselves, the president and I, what's the story we're trying to tell here? Um, and while a lot of the White House is responding to events, being reactive to events uh, at your best, you can you can set the tone for the country. You can you can change the terms of the debate. You can move people to a cause. Talk about the the historical framework in working on speeches, especially important ones, major ones, certainly some of the ones you talk about in grace, the sense of of history that's that's pervasive. Yeah, it's always around you, you know, and you're you're aware, especially in the White House, that you're part of a continuum uh, of American history. And 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 when we could, we would try to remind people of that. Um that that democracy is kind of a longer game a longer struggle uh, but a lot of the time you know we wrote two thousand three thousand four hundred seventy seven <laughs> speeches and statements in the white house so you're not you're not constantly you don't always have the time to you know weave in uh history to it a lot of times you're just trying to push the ball forward a little bit and you know that's one of the things that, that i hope comes across in the book that for all 2,922 days were in the White House um you know you'd go home happy if if you did move the ball forward just a little bit and that's not 
you know, that doesn't mean uh, you're setting your sights lower, being fatalistic. It's because all of those inches ultimately, you know, get you a first down and a touchdown. And and you get these kind of big victories that that all, you know, a few of them coalesced and happened um, in the 10 days over the book, which the book takes place. Did you have a sense sometimes of which speeches at the moment would stick, the words or the phrases that would, would carry on long after the speech? You don't always know. Um, and, and that's not it's not a great way to write a speech. You know, you don't always write it for history. You try to actually write it for the moment, for the audience you have, for the you, you place it in, in the firm context of your times. Um, there, there were times when we knew, you know, maybe the night before a speech that it was going to be good. Um, you know, Selma was an example of that. Um, but the rest of the time, you know, you're, you're, you don't want to go past your audience. You want to talk to your audience where they are. You want to talk like a human being, you know, there's uh, speech writing is actually simpler than most people think. Um, I teach it now in, at Northwestern, uh, university, as you mentioned, and, you know, one of the first lessons I teach my students is to talk like a human. There are too many politicians who don't do that. Uh, in fact, their, their first assignment each year is, to write a speech on an issue you're passionate about, but your audience is a school assembly of 10 year olds. And the purpose of that is to get you out of being overly lofty or academic and just simplify what you're talking about as much as you can, not, not dumb it down. That's different, but, but talk to people conversationally, get them excited. Why should they care about you and what you have to say? But of course the, the, the overlay is that in your case, you were writing for a singular person with his own style and his own cadence and his own way of, of, of approaching subjects. Talk about embodying that as you're writing speeches. Sure. You know, it, I mean, that was the that was the challenge of writing for Barack Obama is that he was a writer um, and he was a very good one. You know, he's on record as far back as the first campaign in 2008 saying I'm a better speechwriter than my speechwriters. So that was that was always <laughs> our challenge was he would keep us on our toes and you know, the way he viewed speech writing was as a collaborative exercise. Um, he did view it as a, as a team effort between, you know, I had eight speech writers on my team, but for each one of us working with him one-on-one, -on -one, he wanted us to give him something he could work with. And he would often stay up late at night working on it, you know, by hand. Um, those were his best hours, you know, kind of between midnight and 2 a.m. But we disobeyed that guidance a lot of the time. It, it, it wasn't enough for us to just, just get him something he could work with. We always wanted to get him something he would be impressed by, you know, something uh, something almost perfect. And, you know, at times we would actually just make it harder on ourselves rather than rather than get him something he could work with. We'd kill ourselves and, and stay up all night and just try to make something perfect, even though there is no such thing. The, the idea of an all-nighter at the White House has its own kind of sense of history. Yeah, uh, it doesn't in the moment because uh, you're just kind of you're tired and freaking out. And, uh, you know, there's a night crew vacuuming and, and coming in to empty your trash and they're surprised to see you there. Um, but, you know, you know that that what you're doing um, makes a difference. And I, I always worked better at night, too, uh, back in, in the White House days. It's, it's I have a baby now, so uh, nighttime is off limits. But um there's something about the night that makes the world feel bigger and, and inspires bigger thoughts. And so, you know, President Obama and I synced up in those hours. Those were those were our best hours. And we'd often email each other back and forth um, after midnight with ideas for speeches. One of the things that's so striking is the number of eulogies that that had to be written. Talk about that. 
Yeah, that's not the type of thing that you think about when you first come into the White House. Um, you think about writing, you know, State of the Union addresses, inaugural addresses, moonshots. Um, you don't think about writing eulogies. And there were a few you do just when when somebody of importance passes away. But the, the sheer number we had to do after mass shootings really took a toll on us. And it took a toll on the president, it seemed. It did. Yeah, he he it got to the point where he just didn't want to do it anymore. Um you know, in, in the massacre in Newtown, which is when 20 little kids were murdered in their classroom, six-year-olds, along with uh, six educators who died trying to protect them. And that happened about a month after President Obama won re-election. Um, and he set aside his second-term agenda to try to do something about guns first, knowing that the odds were long, um, knowing that Republicans held a filibuster-proof majority or minority in uh, the Senate. Um and but but we had one little glimmer of hope there were two conservative senators with a ratings from the nra joe manchin from west virginia and pat toomey republican from pennsylvania and the two of them worked together on a universal background checks bill that had the support of 90 percent of americans 80 percent of republicans 70 percent of nra households most americans thought it was the law and uh you know we 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 gave guns some real estate in the inaugural address uh, a lot of real estate for the big ending in the State of the Union address, barnstormed the country speaking about it. And in April of 2013, um, with the parents of the Newtown victims looking on from the gallery, Republicans in the Senate blocked a vote on the background checks bill. They wouldn't even allow it. It had 55 votes, um, would have passed, but it just couldn't just couldn't secure the 60 it needed for the filibuster. And that was about as angry and cynical as I've ever seen President Obama. You know, he came, he gave a pretty passionate statement in the Rose Garden, surrounded by those parents and came back inside afterwards and said, you know, the next time this happens, I don't want to speak. I don't want to say anything. Um, if, if we've decided as a country that we're not going to do anything about this, then I don't want to play this role where after every mass shooting, we go through a cycle of recrimination. Then I go ahead and give a eulogy and give everybody permission to move on because we shouldn't move on from this. And that was, you know, again, I said he was cynical. There, there has been a lot of progress on the state and local level since then. You had, you had organizations like Moms Demand in every town spring up out of, out of all those mass shootings. And, you know, just last week in the midterms, uh, Oregon passed a couple of referenda um, uh, on, on guns. And, you know, President Biden signed into law the first gun bill in 30 years. So progress is still possible. But he just didn't want to give these eulogies anymore. And then Charleston ended up being the first real test of that proposition. And Charleston is, is one of the events that, that you talk about in grace of, as you say, 2,922 days. What was it about these 10? How did you focus on these 10? Well, it's the sheer magnitude of the events that happened in those 10 days. You know, I remember somebody writing uh, at the end of that week, I can't remember who uh, it was just it was too implausible for an entire season of the West Wing. And when I was talking to people as I was writing this book, you know, friends remembered all those events, but didn't remember that they all happened in the same week. It just kind of blew everyone's minds. We were as those 10 days began, we were already focused on uh, a couple looming Supreme Court decisions on Obamacare uh, was before the court for the second time and marriage equality was before the court. And there's a very real chance that the Supreme Court would tell millions of Americans um, no, you, you know, even if you work two jobs, you don't have a right to health insurance. Uh, you don't get help for it. And people forget too, you know, for the more than 100 million Americans with employer-based health insurance, they could have lost their pre-existing conditions protections. Um, so a lot of people would have, would have been hurt pretty badly by that. 
marriage equality, the Supreme Court could have told millions of Americans, no, you don't get to marry the person you love like the rest of us can. You're in effect a second class citizen. And, you know, we had read too many letters and met too many people um, who had benefited from Obamacare by that point, whose lives had been saved by Obamacare at that point. And we worked with a whole bunch of people um, who were gay. And the idea of looking them in the eye, if the Supreme Court said you can't get married, just just was was a crushing thought. And as we're working on these speeches, we have to prepare speeches for every possible outcome. So there are actually four different outcomes for each case, you know, win, lose, or something in between. This massacre happens in Charleston, uh, where a self-radicalized white supremacist um, goes into a famous historic black church in Charleston uh, during Bible study and murders eight parishioners and their pastor and said he wanted to start a race war. And, you know, that that was that was a type of you can't rank mass shootings, but that was the type of event that threatened to, you know, tear open some of our oldest wounds. Um, and, you know, we were all worried about recrimination and things getting worse. And there was a very real debate about inside the White House about whether or not President Obama would give a eulogy. He didn't want to for the reasons I outlined before. And selfishly, I didn't want to write one. Um, and as the week unfolded, you know, there's this extraordinary act of grace from the families of the victims. They all went to the killer's arraignment and, you know, one by one forgave him, which was something I wouldn't have the strength to do. And that sort of tipped President Obama into, um, all right, you know, I will go give a eulogy. And talk about the process of, of that speech, because it is a little different than some of the others. Um, you know, actually, the, the, the process was the same. Um, you know, we, we sat down and, and tried to figure out what we're going to talk about here. He just he's, you know, President Obama has admitted publicly uh, he didn't give me a whole much to go on. He said, you know, talk about talk about race, talk about guns, talk about the Confederate flag and wrap it all up in grace. And I said, well, what does that mean? And so while I'm working on these other speeches with my team, I start to piece together a eulogy and um, give it to him the afternoon before, which is pretty typical. Um, but he called me back to the White House that night uh, around 11 o'clock, and he had pretty much rewritten the back half um, and and really made it sing. He he basically crossed that everything after I wrote the phrase Amazing Grace, and he rebuilt the back half, the structure of the speech around the lyrics to the song. And uh, it was beautiful. And, um, you know, I, I felt like I'd let him down because I, I just wasn't able to get him something that met the moment. Um, he's also he's also said that publicly, which is true. Uh, but he said, look, brother, you know, we're collaborators, just like I was like I was saying before, we're collaborators. You know, you gave me what I needed to do to get the job done. You'll see your work uh, in, in my rewrite. And when you've been thinking about these issues for 40 years, you'll know what you want to say, too. What was the most difficult experience for you? I mean, whether it was in this 10 days or even in the, in the broader 2,900 plus days, the most difficult speech, the most difficult experience for you in the West Wing? Newtown, absolutely. I mean, how do you eulogize 20 little children? Um, and we had less than 48 hours to do it. That, that mass shooting happened on a Friday and the memorial service was on a Sunday. And, you know, the country's still in shock, but the the town is is still really in shock. And the president spent three hours on Saturday afternoon at Newtown High School because the elementary school was a crime scene, um, meeting individually with every single family for three hours. And, you know, it's the first time I've ever seen, maybe the only time I've ever seen a Secret Service agent cry. And, you know, still, as we're working on this eulogy uh, in the school, he just goes and composes himself in the bathroom for a minute or two and then has to go out and give a eulogy for 
20 little children, six-year-olds, five and six-year-olds on national television. And that's just, it's impossible to find the words for something like that. But somehow you did. Tell a little bit about another mass shooting, the one in Tucson with Gabby Giffords and the speech that you wrote for that and the story of the little girl. That was Tucson in 2011 when Congressman Gabby Giffords was targeted uh, and shot in the head while she was doing an event with her constituents outside a grocery store. And, um, you know, one of her one of her interns died, a federal judge died, uh, a couple of retirees died, and this little girl died, Christina Taylor Green. She was just nine years old. And what I decided to do there with that draft was um, towards the end actually sort of shift the president's tone so that he was almost speaking like a little girl. Um, there's this, you know, we do a lot of research after an event like this into the people's lives. And, you know, she was nine. She was just becoming aware of um, democracy and you know, she was in student government. She she was the one who wanted to go see uh, her congresswoman, you know, someone who she thought was was good and, and a hero to someone like her, a role model. And so I wrote that that part of the speech towards the end with you know shorter sentences, almost like I was talking about with my my students assignment earlier, something that was that was written for uh, younger people and in the voice of a younger person, someone who someone whose eyes uh, were undimmed by cynicism, someone who's still alive to all the possibilities of America. And then when we we as a country let her down um, and my researcher uh, found this book um, they called Faces of Hope that featured one child from each state who was born on 9-11, um, just kind of as this way to, I, I don't know why the person wrote the book, just I, I assume it's just some way to make sense of something senseless, some way to find hope out of something awful. And she was born on 9-11. She was the one from Arizona. And uh, on on both sides of her picture in the book, you know, on, of every child's picture in the book, there were you know wishes for a young child's life. And the ones on either side of hers were, I hope you know all the words to the Star Spangled Banner and sing it with your hands over your heart. And I hope you jump in rain puddles. And I thought that was just a nice image to end on, you know, uh, when this this little girl's been taken from us and this community's reeling that um, um, that she's, you know, up in heaven jumping in rain puddles. Aside from growing older and going through these experiences, talk about how your your view of the world, how your view of politics shifted or changed or became reinforced during your time in the White House? Um, I don't think it, it, it didn't. It definitely didn't make me more cynical or I wouldn't still, I wouldn't be teaching my students. I wouldn't be working with progressive candidates. Um, you know, it actually made me more alive to the things we can do together. None of us, none of us went into the first campaign or the White House thinking, okay, great, we're going to get everything done that we want. Uh, we knew how messy and difficult democracy would be. And it turns out it is. Um, but, you know, we were able to do some pretty extraordinary things. And the, the team we worked with inside the White House, you know, we, uh, we loved each other, which might sound, you know, a little too sugary, but we, we were all, you know, most of us were, were forged into a family on that first campaign, the longest primary campaign in history. And, um, you know, a bunch of us lived together while we worked in the white house. And, you know, a lot of us got married while we were in the white house to our colleagues, like I did. Uh, and you know, I tell Obama to this day that he's got dozens of little grandbabies running around the country, <laughs> um, just by virtue of the fact that he decided to run for president and hire a bunch of young people. Um, and you've got all these a bunch of my former colleagues have run for office. One of them flipped a seat in North Carolina and became a congressman. 
And, you know, now I, I teach all these, all these 21 year olds, um, everything that I've learned and they are, they are so eager and impatient to get into politics and change things that it's impossible not to remain hopeful. And that's not a naive sentiment. I mean, you know, you look around and, and politics can just seem busted all the time. Um, but that's what a democracy is. It's never been easy. No one's ever gotten everything that they want. It's always been rancorous. Um, you know, and, and the, that's why the, the subtitle of the book is the 10 days in the battle for America. You know, we're always engaged in this battle. We always have been, and we always will be, um, because it's just, you know, democracy is, uh, as president Obama said, it's not a clash of armies. It's a clash of wills. And we're always, we're constantly engaged in this battle to determine the true meaning of America and whichever side works harder and longer without ever giving up. Um, and joyfully, there should be joy in politics too, in the struggle. That side's ultimately going to win out. Have we lost that joy, do you think? Has some of that joy slipped away? I think a lot of candidates have, yeah. And, and, and you know, the, the the way the media ecosystem and social media are set up, it's, you know, joy doesn't sell. Um, rancor sells. But if you, you know, if you, I, I send my students to campaigns. I encourage them to go join campaigns. There is joy on campaigns. It is fun to work with other people around a candidate or a cause you believe in. Uh, and it doesn't have to be electoral campaigns. It can be advocacy campaigns. But that's not the type of thing that gets picked up in the media because they just it's not as sexy as um, rancor and division. But yes, there is a lot of joy in, in the struggle of it. And I do think candidates uh, should be out there having more fun, being more joyful. If you watched President Obama on the campaign trail, before the midterms, he has a lot of fun mm -hmm. and people gravitate to that. You know, it doesn't have to be petty and mean spirited and mopey all the time. Um, you know, voters, voters enjoy and reward someone who looks like they're having a good time. When you hear the rhetoric about how bad things are and it's never been worse, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and there's been so much of that rhetoric lately. When you look at it as, as you must with a much broader and, and more intense historical sense and realizing, as, as you just talked about a few moments ago, that it is a constant struggle, that we've been through so many of these battles before in, in different ways. Talk about how you, how you hear that rhetoric today about things being so bad. Um, well, I, you know, everyone kind of looks through their own individual immediate prisms, right? And nobody wants to be told uh oh yeah we had a civil war once oh yeah we've had a we had a civil rights movement where people got their heads cracked in for just trying to get the their equal right to vote um nobody wants to be told these things as if it diminishes the very real challenges we all have in our lives today but it's true you know i mean we we all have our problems today but but is there another era in american history in which you would rather be alive than right now. I'm sure there's there's some of the MAGA crowd that would prefer to live in the 1950s because the 1950s was great for being a white guy. It wasn't necessarily great for everybody else. Um, it, you know, President Obama always used to say, imagine if, you know, you could be born at any time in history, but you don't know what you're going to be. You don't know if you're going to be a man or a woman. You don't know what the color of your skin is going to be. Uh, you don't know where you're going to be born. Would you really choose another place in another time than right now in America? And that's a pretty tough thing. You know, I, I, I sure wouldn't. Um, that's a pretty big gamble. So 
but that's also not a winning argument. You don't want to be the candidate who goes out and tells people everything is great. People don't need to hear that. It's not that's not a candidate's job. And I actually, you know, the 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 Biden administration did that a bit this year, which I think was a mistake. You don't have to go out and say, uh, look how good the economy is. People know uh, how they feel and people people know what they're really going through. Now, the the corollary to that is, you know, you've got you've got Fox News and, and the right wing all talking about how uh cities are you know blood soaked crime infested cesspools i live in new york city that's not true um it is true that there have been spikes in in violent crime in most cities in america but you pull out widen the aperture of the lens it is still way lower than it was 10 years ago 20 years ago 30 years ago but again that's not the type of thing you tell people so what you do is you just paint a picture of uh what life should be like you know you have to as a, as a candidate or as a president you know you focus more less on here's what's happening right now and more on if you choose me if you choose my ideas if you choose my solutions here's what the world's going to look like and finally talk about almost what must have been a withdrawal from the intensity of all of those years in the west wing you talk about the camaraderie you talk about the late night hours leaving that moving away from that must have been difficult. Jeff, that's a very astute question because um, it's true. I, I remember I was on Air Force One probably in the last six months of the administration and the president had five military aides, one from each branch of, of the military who would carry the nuclear football around. And, you know, uh, we all became good friends with them. And I was sitting on the plane and, and one of them goes, hey, listen, man, when you leave the White House, it's going to take about a year for the adrenaline to drain out of your body. And you're not even going to realize it, but you're going to be um, you're gonna be messed up for a while. And he likened it to, he had done several tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and he, you know, obviously it's not the same thing. We were never you know, running from bombs and gunfire in the white house, but he said, trust me, you know, when I came back from Iraq, it would often take a full year just to almost get back to normal. Uh, and the same thing is going to happen to you in a way. And he was right. You know, I, I didn't even fully get to grapple with it because I stayed with president Obama for, um, four more years. So while our lives were a little quieter, um, I still didn't really get to process. And it takes a lot of time. And a lot of people really struggle with it too. You you just, you lose. Uh, it would have happened either way. There there would not have been a lot of people who would have stayed on for a Hillary Clinton White House. You know, we, we signed up to work for Barack Obama. We put eight years into it. We were exhausted. Um, and a lot of people wanted to try new things. But leaving suddenly like that you know you have a you have an end date at your job it's noon on january 20th and uh a lot of people struggled and grappled with you're no longer with your friends you know eight to 12 hours a day you're no longer working on these big important issues on behalf of other people um and some people found you know second acts that kept them satisfied and fulfilled and some people i think are still kind of struggling to find something that that will be the same because nothing will ever really be the same um, as working in the White House, as working in our White House. You know, I've, I've filled that by by writing this book, by teaching my students, um, by raising a daughter. You know, those are kind of the three things that that uh, keep me happy and fulfilled. And I still talk to President Obama all the time and my firm, uh, Fenway, we work with progressive candidates and, and causes. Um, but nothing will ever really be the same as working in the White House. Cody Keenan. His book is Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America. Cody, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thank you.